About uh, 10 years ago or so, I had this neighbor down the street, and he had this old, it was like a 1940s hot rod. It was amazing. He built it himself, and it was just this incredible feat of engineering. It was in his garage. He always shined it up, and every once in a while, he'd pull it out and start the engine to make sure that, you know, things didn't, you know, seize up over time, because he didn't drive it that often. It was amazing. You could always hear when he fired this car up. And uh, so, as, as some of you know, I was a youth pastor for years, and I was having these uh, young guys come to my house for this event. And so I said, oh, you know, I'm going to go and ask if uh, our, uh, my neighbor here, if, if uh, he'd let the, let the young guys uh, look at the car. So I went down the street, knocked on the door, and I said, hey, Randy, next week I'm going to have a bunch of these uh, young, uh, young guys at my house. They'd probably think this car is incredible. Uh, can I bring them over, and you can kind of show it off? And he looks at me, and he goes... I'm going to say undecided. And I thought, what, a, what an interesting response. Not no, forget it, I don't want them to touch the car, or yeah, I'd love to show off my car. Undecided. Now, that is a reasonable response. When you think about how many times you and I uh, have engagements in the future or appointments to go to or or uh, get invites to things where we're like, you know what, I'm undecided. I'm going to wait and see how I feel that day. I'm going to wait and see how that week goes. It's a, it is actually a reasonable response, but to stand in front and have him say it that way, it was just so interesting to me. Now, um, when it comes to the religions of the world, thinking about if at the end of your life you're going to stand before God and have him say, well done, you, you know, you're welcome into my presence, feels a lot like <sighs> undecided. Let's see how your life is next week. Let's see what your track record looks like over the next decade. Let's see how you do. Your verdict is essentially undecided. All the major religions of the world operate on some basis of some religious uh, leader, guru, saying these are the steps one must take to work out their salvation. All world religions operate in this way, except, of course, Christianity does not. Christianity stands apart from the religions in the world in the sense that our verdict is not undecided. Actually, it's quite decided. We've been studying the book of Romans, where Paul has made this very clear. As we've unpacked chapter by chapter, as Paul is showing us what it is that Christ has done. We see how Christianity, uh, for those of you who may be here this morning exploring Christian faith, considering Christian faith, how it is very different from living a life in which you're basically thinking about you know, the finality, mortality, these things, and think that God is somehow undecided. He's not undecided. And um, this is because essentially world religions operate on the premise of contribution. Whereas the gospel is not based on contribution, but substitution. Total and final substitution. That what Christ did is sufficient. And so in Christianity, there is no contribution. And for the last seven chapters, Paul has been unpacking our great need and God's great solution, God's diagnosis and God's deliverance over the last seven chapters. This morning, our text is chapter 8. As we look at the sort of definitive terms that Paul is using, the definitive way in which he speaks about what Christ has done single-handedly and completely, so that for those of us who are united to Christ by grace and through faith alone, we know that God is not undecided. And so what Paul does here in Romans chapter 8 is he makes these strong and definitive claims about the gospel. And then he 
gets us to look at how these strong and definitive claims about the gospel lead to real life change that's fueled by this gospel. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to read to verse uh, 13 this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And those who live according to the flesh, they have their minds set on what their sinful nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by sinful desires is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by sinful desires is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. And if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is God's word. Romans is like the great unboxing, where the Apostle Paul just says, hey, let's just unbox this this thing called the gospel and see how good it is. And he pulls out in every individual piece, chapter after chapter. Ooh, look at this. It's justification. Let's unwrap it. What does all of that mean? And, and, And he just wants us to take it all in. And whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or 30 minutes, you continue in the Christian faith the way you began, by grace. My, uh, one of my systematic theology profs, his name is Dr. Michael Allen. I'm going to take a, a page out of his textbook because he kind of explains how our life begins and continues by grace in this way. He says that, he says that there's two, cat- two helpful categories that we get, not only in Romans, but in the New Testament, to think about what God has done. And he calls it God's grounds for the gospel and God's goal in the gospel. His grounds and his goal. The grounds for justifying sinners... And then remaining just is that at the, cross, at the cross, Christ paid for our sin. That's God's grounds to be able to say, yes, I'm justifying sinners and I'm just at the same time because Christ has paid for our sin. That's God's grounds. But God's goal in taking away the guilt of all of our sin is so that his children would live in increasing freedom from the grip of sin. And so we're going to unbox you know, three things this morning from this passage uh, here in chapter 8, and we're kind of, kind of look at them. And for those of you who might be newer to Redeemer, and you've been coming for a couple weeks or a couple months, and I'm always unpacking things in threes, and you're like, is there more than three uh, things that can be pulled from a chapter? And the answer is no, absolutely not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, the duller knives in the theological drawer, so I just do threes because it's easy for me to remember what I'm, where I'm going. So here's the three things we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the first thing 
is the basis for abolishing condemnation. Second thing is the guiding force of a preoccupied mind. And the third thing is the motivating power of gratitude. The basis for abolishing condemnation, the guiding force of a preoccupied mind, the motivating power of gratitude. So first let's look at this basis for abolishing condemnation. In verse 1 it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, period. I grew up in a context where this was kind of uh, thought of, like, don't feel bad about it. Condemnation was like always associated with an idea of feeling Condemned, like, oh, I feel bad. And so you do something terrible and another Christian would say, hey, listen, there's no condemnation. It was, but the tone was kind of like, don't feel bad about it. That's not what this means. If you do something unloving and you hurt somebody, it is right and good that we feel bad about it. We don't want to become like Christian Stoics who are like, we do terrible things. We hurt people that we love and we're like, oh, well, there's no condemnation, so I don't feel bad about it. No, it's right and good that I should feel bad about it. What this condemnation is, is it's a legal term. We have a couple lawyers in here this morning, so you're going to appreciate why Paul keeps using legal terms to explain what God has done. Condemnation in the Greek is katakrima, and what, it, what that means is a just sentence that is delivered after due process. That's what the word means. And so what God is saying is, through this passage, there is therefore now no judgment, no penalty, no punishment, no guilt. That's what it means. And he starts out by this chapter by this saying, if you trust in Christ, this sentence, this judgment, this penalty, it is not waiting for you. Because due process has been done at the cross. And God is just. He doesn't make us pay for what Christ has already paid for. And so the reason why this is so radical is that, you know, we have to understand that God did not put some of his judgment on Christ and then reserve some of his judgment for you based on what you do this week. So that Christians kind of live in a state of, uh, I guess God is undecided. Now, he's not undecided. He's very decided in Christ. And this is so important for us because this is what actually fuels the life that we live, which we're going to get to um, in a moment. And it's hard for some of us to grasp. If you're here exploring Christian faith, this might be very new to be like, okay, well, that is a different way to think about God, that actually your verdict is not based upon the life that you live next week, but your verdict is based upon Jesus. So that might be new for some of you. But for some of you, this is not new, but it's still hard to grasp because perhaps you grew up, like I did, in a context where there's theological jump scares. Do you know what I mean by that? The jump scares, you know when you watch movies and they love the jump scares? Like, for example, shark movies are all about the jump scares. They're like, you thought it was dealt with, but it's not. You thought it was dead, but it's coming back. And if you have a theological construct of that there's, like, in the end on Judgment Day, there's a jump scare, the possibility of a jump scare, then the, the whole way of sort of the motivation for the Christian life is completely skewed. It's totally off. It's contrary to the theology that Paul is unpacking in Romans. I remember, you know, years ago, the kids were, Isaiah and Rebecca, they were probably 10 or 11, something like that, I don't know, that around those ages, were watching this uh, shark movie that came out in the early 2000s, Deep Blue Sea. And I remember, right in the middle of Samuel L. Jackson's motivated monologue, the shark comes up and eats him right in the middle of it. And we knew it was happening. And so when we were watching it with the kids, we are like, listen, there's going to be a jump scare and it's coming. And we told them and we warned them. And then while it was happening... As soon as it happened, Susan lets out this shriek. 
and the kids stop watching the movie and they're just looking at their mother and they're screaming because Susan freaked them out. Some of, us is, some of us have grown up so thoroughly baptized in a theological construct that says in the end there might be a jump scare waiting for you. It's difficult for us to grasp the radicality of the gospel and the radicality of God's grace, but we have to grasp it because it actually propels, you know, essentially the second half of Romans. The first eight chapters is all about what God has done, and the second half, essentially, from kind of chapters 8 and moving to 16, is how we live in light of what God has done, and that is very consistent in Paul's theology. It's in almost every letter that he writes. Paul, you know, to borrow from John O'Leinbaugh, who's the homiletics prof at Oxford, he says that God has a because, therefore, way of talking about the gospel. It's because of what Christ has done, therefore I live. And so, some of you may be thinking, this sounds fantastic. I love, I love the idea that it's sufficient in Christ. There's no theological jump scare. There's no condemnation. There is no judgment, penalty, punishment waiting for me. I'd love to believe that, but some of you are thinking, the scholars among us, I've read the warning te- texts. I've read the warning passages in Hebrews. I've read warning. I've read texts in the New Testament that seem to sound like some of you better watch it. You better not turn. You better not turn. You better not mess this up. You better not leave Jesus. And you've read warning texts that seem to sound as though maybe there is actually a theological jump scare waiting in the end. So I want to perhaps make you very, make a very, first I'll start with a bold statement before I try and parse this out. Here's the bold statement. The the Bible, the the authors of the New Testament are not confused. They're not contradicting each other. So the moment that we find an apparent contradiction, we've got to wrestle with those texts to see how they can be congruent. And so here, here, here it is. In those New Testament warning texts, they are not given to create fearful uncertainty in those who trust in Christ. They are given to confront both the self-righteous churchgoer and the rebellious churchgoer to show the self-righteous churchgoer or the rebellious churchgoer that neither of them are trusting in Christ. Because, for example, the New Testament warning that comes to the the, the self-righteous churchgoer, the self-righteous churchgoer thinks that their worship and their prayer and their giving and their serving and their life of love is saving them which denies Jesus as the Savior because they've made themselves the Savior. They're the main actor in the equation. So the warning goes to them. In the other ditch, you've got the rebellious churchgoer. And the rebellious churchgoer gives no priority to worship, no priority to giving, no priority to serving, no priority to loving. And and the rebellious churchgoer thinks, hey, listen, I can reject Jesus as Lord. I can just claim I'm excited about his grace, but I'll worship him if it's not rain, you know, if the weather is terrible and there's nothing else to do on Sunday. The, both ditches are denying either this, Jesus as Savior or Jesus as Lord. And so the warnings are for them. The warnings are not for the, the repentant. Because if you're not self-righteous ditch or you're not in the, in, in, the, uh, in the rebellious ditch, hopefully that we're on this gospel road, which looks like repentance. And for the repentant church score, the repentant Christian knows there is no condemnation for our sin. And so we receive Jesus as Savior, and we bend our knee to him as Lord, and we desire, we put all of our energy and effort into living to the obedience of Christ because there's no earning in it. It's about imitation. And so we stop dead in our tracks every Sunday to come and worship him and we, and we train our children to do the same. Why? Not because we're raving legalists and God isn't going to love us if we, if we don't have a fantastic church attendance. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. It's because we have a revelation that there is no condemnation. 
And so because there is no condemnation, we're getting to the, the third point, the motivation now is gratitude. So the basis for abolishing condemnation is Christ's substitution. The guilt of your sin is simply not coming back. And when you look at the first four verses, you find, you, you'll see how they shine a spotlight on the redemptive work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father planned your redemption in grace. The Son took your judgment in grace. And the Spirit empowers you to live free from sin, the sin that once brought you condemnation, and he does it by grace. So that is the basis for abolishing condemnation. Christ's substitution. Here's the move on to the second thing, which is the guiding force of a preoccupied mind. Now, when you look at the middle of this passage, verse 5, starting in verse 5, it, Paul gives us a connection between thinking and living, right? And, he extru- and his instruction is set your mind. And when, if Paul is saying set your mind, what that implies is our minds have already have default settings, and they need to be reset. And they need to be intentionally set. In the Greek, you could also translate set the mind to, it could say intentionally focus. You could also faithfully translate the language to say, let your imagination be captivated by. Okay, so what Paul is getting at is we all wake up in the morning and it's like our souls are flashing 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and they got to be set. And you go through your whole day and you wake up the next morning and guess what? Your soul is going 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And it's got to be set. And if we don't set it on resting in the goodness and the grace of God, the implications of what it means to be a child of God, if we don't set it, then it's going to be preset. And it's going to be preoccupied. And if you want to know what that looks like, you go back and you read verse 7, or chapter 7, the civil war going on in Paul's soul. And he can't do the things that he wants to do, and that's what it ends up looking like. So Paul gives us this, this uh, instruction because we all have thought patterns or desires or habits or ways of dealing with people or stressful situations um, that used to be our old operating system. But the Spirit comes in, the Gospel comes in. As children of, of God, we are filled with the Spirit, all of us, filled with the Spirit, and God's grace offers this new operating system. So what we learn from verses 5 to 7 is that this preoccupied mind, this state of being intently focused or having our imagination captivated, it's a guiding force in our life. And so as children of grace, we've been given the Spirit, and the Spirit draws our attention to the old operating system of our sin and invites us into the new operating system which looks like the imitation of our savior and that's where the book of romans takes us think about it this way if you've ever been using a gps to go someplace and then there's construction has been done and there's a new road or a new on-ramp or a new highway and you take the new you take the new road and the GPS goes, uh, recalculating, recalculating, make a U-turn at your first opportunity, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. Right? Because I go, well, this is a new road. This is not the road we should be on. Because it's new. And that's a picture of what the Spirit does in our lives. Is Yes, we had old ways of thinking and behaving and living and just moving ahead on autopilot. But then we get filled with the Spirit and now our imitation of Christ is new. Rather than, rather than operating in a stressful situation or dealing with something in home, 
with our families, our relationships with our friends. Perhaps we always handled it this way. Perhaps we were always controlling, always manipulative, always phrased things in a way so that we could kind of maneuver things to our end. And all that's the old pattern. And suddenly the Spirit comes in, and now we want to be generous listeners, and we want to, you know, speak clearly without without being manipulative and having dialogue and conversation. That's very new. But that's the kind of thing that only comes as we recognize the guiding force of the preoccupied mind. And by the Spirit, we are able, to, we are able then to uh, be led uh, into the, the peaceful thing, ways of relating and things of God. This is what Paul's getting at when way back in chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel, and in, in, in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel which in the Greek means good news, right? I'm not ashamed of the news, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So do you see how in that one, Paul's like, the gospel is news and power. It's not, it's not, just, it's not just one or the other. It's news and power. And so here he starts to flesh out what that power looks like, what, what that means. It's the good news that God's grace has covered our sin. It's power because the same grace that covers our sin it does renewing uh, work in us so that we're not defined by our sin. It enables us to recognize and reject it. It, embolden us, it emboldens us to stop cozying up to our sin, which is why in verse 6, if you look at it, Paul uses the term governed. See, again, he's using legal language. Romans is loaded with legal language because he's trying to show us how God takes us unjust sinners saves us and remains just at the same time and how he desires to do renewal in us. So he uses this phrase, hey, listen, we're being governed by a mind that is either leading to death or life and peace, a mind governed by sin or governed by the Spirit. And he's talking to Christians right, as he's describing us because we can, of course, fall back into our old patterns. And so as he gives uh, this to us, we find how this is how we are... are to enjoy life in him, right? If, uh, if our sinful desires are the guiding force of our preoccupied minds, that's going to have an adverse effect on the here and now. You'll notice that Paul's using life and death language all through this, all through this passage, life and death. And he's not just speaking about a future and eternal eschatological life and death, and he is. He's, all, he's, he's bringing that into the here and now to say your, your life, your experience day to day based on the preoccup preoccupation of your mind, is going to be rest or restlessness, life or death. And so he, he invites us to, to uh, consider this. I'll give you two examples. Worry and comfort, okay? All of us have things that we worry about because to be human is to care about certain things. And if you care about certain things in this broken world, there's threats to those things that you care about. So we're going to have moments where we worry, right? And, of course, we can turn to God, the grace of God, and avail ourselves of the Spirit and come out of that worry and into rest, okay? But if worry becomes the guiding force of our preoccupied mind, the worry becomes debilitating, and it consumes us, right? Another example, comfort. So all of us, as humans, desire measures of comfort, have lives of comfort. But if your desire for comfort becomes the fixation of your preoccupied mind so that the most important thing in your life is your personal comfort, you are going to build walls of idolatry around all sorts of things so that you can just live inside everything under, you know, the label of self-care. 
And we'll essentially find ways of talking about it, like, well, this is just about my own personal health and having healthy boundaries. And that, that, it, that could possibly be true. But what could also be true, if you're honest with the darkness of your heart, is you've just become obsessed with comfort. And as North Americans, this is a huge, massive challenge for us. In other countries, they don't wrestle with the idol of comfort because there's no such thing as comfort. But here, in cushy southern Ontario, where it, where, it, where it is constantly available to us, that's an example. Those are just two examples, worrying comfort, of how the guiding force of our preoccupied mind can pull us out of life in God and drag us into, um, and drag us into the brokenness and the death uh, of finding some little mini-messiah and then orienting our, our life and orbiting around um, it instead. And so this passage is really provoking us to see that we can't simply deal with sin with our minds. That's why he's contrasting, when he's talking about the preoccupation of the mind, and he's drawing us to see the power of the Spirit. What does it look like as a child of God to be filled with the Spirit uh, and the implications of that? Because we can't uh, simply change our sin with our minds. For example, if, even if you are successful in identifying an unhelpful impulse, you can, you can intellectually identify it, you can intellectually decide to choose something different, but the root is still there. So our minds can be successful in identifying and choosing, but, our, but the mind can, cannot reroute what is at root in the heart, the soul, the hierarchy of, of, our, what, of our humanity. For that, we need the healing power of the Spirit. And we worshipped our way into this problem, and the only way is to worship our way out of it. And you get that from way back in Genesis 3. We had a worship problem and a glory problem. And the answer to the peace and the rest in the soul is where is the allocation of our worship and where is the allocation of, of our glory. And so Paul gives us this uh, challenge in, in verse 6 with the language of being governed. When you look at verses 7 and 8, he makes a bold statement. He says, you know, those that do not have the spirit are hostile to God and unable to keep the law of God. And that might be really offensive for those of you who are here considering Christian faith, exploring Christian faith, and you think this is just talking about ethics. And you might say, oh, this is the problem I have with Christianity. You think you've got the high ground on ethics, but you can be an atheist and you can care for the poor and do all sorts of ethical things. So what's the Bible's problem? And that is a uh, reasonable argument. So let me help you understand what this, what this is actually getting at here. You see... Um, God is not calling us, and this text is not calling us to just be generally upstanding citizens, generally loving people. God's law is not a generic call to just lead a loving life. Because, of course, whether you're a Christian, atheist, agnostic, you can, just, you can lead a loving life. Christians don't have the market on leading loving lives. But what this is getting at here is that the law of God calls us to love the God who gave us life, to love God with our life. I'm gonna, I'll explain it in this way, how, why this is not just sort of ethical superiority, so that those of us who have been Christians for years can somehow walk through, the, walk through the hall you know, of the office and be like, I am more ethical than all of these people because I'm a Christian and they're not and they're hostile to God and I love God and I have somehow have the high ground. And no, this is not what this is about. 
It's saying it's, it's impossible. The person who, is, who does not love God, it's impossible for them to please God. Why? Because God is not after your good works. God is after you. Let's say after this service, my three children come up to me and they say, Dad, we had a meeting and the kids have decided we have no use for you. We don't love you. And in fact, we don't want to be a part of your lives. And Rebecca puts the other two in the car and they drive off. But I'm following them on Instagram and I notice that they are leading ethical lives. They're upstanding citizens. They go on to uh, do helpful things in the city and uh, they set aside portion of their income every paycheck and they're giving some of that money to the poor and uh, they're good people. Let me ask you a question. Am I as a father pleased? No. Because I, what I want is not just a generically ethical life that my children grow to be upstanding citizens. What I want is I want a loving relationship with them. So when the Bible says, apart from God, it is impossible to please God, it is not saying, if, for those of you who are visiting this morning exploring Christian faith, it doesn't mean you can't go out and be a loving and gracious person in the city. Of course you can. I'm not any better than you. But I'll tell you something, and this might make you uncomfortable. I'm forgiven, and you're not. I'm not any better than you, but I'm clinging to Jesus, which means before God I have a verdict, and the verdict is not mm, undecided. And it is from the radicality of that grace that I don't deserve that I desire to live to the glory of God, not just a generically ethical life, but that I want to love God with my life. God wants us, what he wants is you. And so this guiding force of the preoccupied mind is powerful. And as God's children, full of his spirit, our minds are to be set. The text says, set your minds on the, on the desires of the spirit. What does the spirit desire? What is he preoccupied with? What is he fixated on? When you read the rest of Romans, it's pretty clear. Actually, if you go home this afternoon and read the rest of chapter 8, which I'm going to get to over the next two weeks, it's very clear what the Spirit is fixated on. There's no mystery what the Spirit is fixated on. You read through the New Testament, no mystery. He is fixated on us knowing that we are loved by God, adopted by God, forgiven by God, cared for by God, will be provided for by God. The Spirit is fixated on us knowing deeply at the core of our being the depths and the breadths of the love of God. That's what he's fixated on. What would your life look like in the middle of, you know, this week when you still have to deal with a stressful thing that's still there? What would it look like to enter into stressful and, ang and anxious and frustrating situations with a conviction, with, with your mind preoccupied with the fact that this life is not all that there is? How might you relate to your finances? How might you relate to your careers? Or how might you relate to the time required to love and care for the people who are sitting around you in this room? How might you relate to that if you were convinced that this life is not all that there is? If your soul was at rest, that you are a child of God loved by the King. That is what the Spirit is fixated on, on and that is what he's fixated on us knowing. Because there, is in, there in there is the renewing power. Therein is the motivating power, which leads us to the last thing. 
right? The basis for abolishing condemnation is Christ's substitution. The guiding force of the preoccupied mind is to intentionally set it on the things of the Spirit, which is what the Spirit is fixated on. That ushers peace and rest into our soul. And finally, the motivating power of gratitude. When you look at verse 11, uh, it says that the resurrection power that raised Christ from the death will also raise us from death. He'll raise us from death one day, but he gives new life to our heart and our mind today, in the here and now. And part of what that looks like is the motivating, life-changing power of gratitude. You see, all, the, the life of Christian obedience is motivated by gratitude. During our confession over the, over the 10 weeks, uh, our elder candidates have been up here walking us through the Ten Commandments, not because the Ten Commandments condemn us, because there's no condemnation but because we need our minds to be alightened to the way in which we do not keep God's commands. So we desire to live in obedience from this position of freedom, from this position of gratitude. You know, last week we talked about the expulsive power of the new affection, that it's like the expulsive power of the gospel coming into our life. The, when grace grips us, it forces other things out. It's like a huge 250-pound man cannonballing into a kiddie pool it displaces all the water and when the gospel comes in it displaces the attractiveness of our sin so that over time sin's attractiveness withers because we're not watering it do we struggle with sin yes will we always struggle with sin yes will christians always fall into sin yes will we be defined by our sin no will we fight it yes we will aggressively fight it, precisely because of grace. That's, that's the power of this section of, of Paul's letter. When you look at verse 12, Paul uses language. He says, we have an obligation. You say, oh man, there it is, the bait and switch. I knew it. I've been preaching grace since 2015, and now it's over. Now we're into obligation. No, I'm going to say exactly what Paul says. Paul says we have an obligation. But what's motivating that obligation? It's not guilt. It's gratitude. He says we're not obligated to the flesh. We're obligated to the one who saved us in grace. But what is it that motivates this obligation? Is the obligation an affront to your freedom? No. Some of you uh, young teenagers who are in here, one day you're going to get your license. Yeah. And when you get your license, you're going to be like, freedom! Yeah, but guess what? You have to, you've got to drive on the right side of the road. You, that's an obligation. If you, if you will fulfill the obligation of driving on the right side of the road, guess what? You get to enjoy freedom. There's this thing called a red light, and you have an obligation to stop at it. And stopping at the red light is the form in which your freedom takes. Understand? So when Paul says we have an obligation, not to the flesh but to the spirit, it's how the freedom in Christ is walked out and actually enjoyed, how we become more fully human as we enjoy the goodness and the glory of God. Many of you in here are musicians. And you can't just ignore the circle of fifths and be like, that's not a thing. No, it is a thing. You can't ignore the scales and be like, the scales don't matter. I'm going to be an incredible musician and never learn the scales. No, actually, you have to learn the scales because being locked into, being locked into the scales is what affords your freedom. When you find a musician who's able to just riff on an instrument you know, and, and, and just flow and go... It's, it's astounding to watch how free they are, but they're actually locked into things. They're locked into key signature, and they're locked into tempo. They're locked into stuff. It's being locked into the right things that actually you can enjoy freedom. 
That is the obligation in which Paul is is, uh, speaking about here. Which is why, and I'm going to close with this, he goes on in verse 13, and he says, you got to kill your sin. Theologians call this the mortification of the flesh, right? Why do they call that? Why do they call it that? Because the word that Paul uses in the Greek is thanatos, and which, which comes from, uh, the, uh, which comes from uh, the root word thanatos. And for the Marvel nerds who are in here who have already picked up on this, there's an evil villain named Thanos who is rightly named after the Greek term thanatos because it, thanatos means death, and thanatos, which is the word that Paul uses here when he says kill your flesh, means, it means a violent end, bring a violent end to it. So what is the reaction of the Christian who who marvels at the scandalous nature of grace of a God who doesn't look at you and say, "Mm, undecided, but actually looks at you and says you're free and clear and all your sin is forgiven and it's gone and there's no theological jump scares and it's never coming back and there's no penalty and there's no punishment. What is our response to that? The response is we get thanatos on on our sin. That's the response. That's what Paul's expecting. He's like, we don't just cozy up to it and live with it. I'll worship Jesus if I don't have to wash my hair. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And so Paul uses that aggressive language to get us to see uh, precisely what this, what this does in us and through us. See, if we're, if, we're, if we're driven by guilt, then the only motivation we have for turning from sin is that we've got some sort of a law to keep. But driven by gratitude, it's not about a law to keep. It's because we have someone to love. If we are driven by guilt, then we relate to God in terms of not wanting to break his rules. But this is not about guilt. This is about gratitude. And this is not about not wanting to break his rules. This is about not wanting to wound his heart. It's about wanting to live in the glorious imitation of the one who saved us, scandalous in grace, because we know there's no condemnation, there's no verdict. God is not undecided. And at the end of the day, there's no jump scare and our sin is not coming back. The penalty for our sin is not coming back. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Let's pray.